0: Welcome to the Reading the Bible Daily with Dave podcast. This podcast is devoted to helping increase your daily exposure to God's Word with a short scripture reading and brief commentary on key ideas, themes, and theology in each chapter. Now, please join your host, Dave
1: Jenkins, for today's episode. Well, welcome back to the Reading the Bible Daily with Dave podcast. Today is January 6th, and we're going to read from Genesis 6. Uh, just as a way of reminder, the format of this show is I, I read one chapter every day, and then I offer a key, an explanation of key thoughts and themes and the theology briefly. The goal here is to get you into God's Word for about 5 to 20 minutes every day. Now, let's read Genesis 6. And when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh. His day shall be a 120 years. And the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. And so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all the earth. All the flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all the flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. "'Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. "'Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. "'Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. "'This is how you are to make it. "'The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth 50 cubits, "'and its height, 30 cubits. "'Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above "'and set the door of the ark in its side. "'Make it with lower, second, and third decks. "'For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth "'to destroy all flesh.' in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep it alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, and of every creeping thing on the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. This is today's reading of God's word. Now, in Genesis six one through eight twenty two of this uh, of Genesis, we are encountering here in this a new section, and so a flood story is included in the Epic of Gilgamesh, has been found in the Mesopotamian literature. It has many similarities to the biblical account in the flood. A certain a man named Utpashin built an ark, loaded it with animals, and survived a torrential rain. The relationship of the two accounts is is anything if uncertain, although the appearance of the flood story in Mesopotamia, it gives some support and confirmation to the historicity of the biblical event. That is the existence of such stories elsewhere indicates that the Bible indeed preserves the memory of a momentous event, as does the Mesopotamian account. There are other key differences between the biblical and the Mesopotamian stories, particularly in regard to what motivated gods or the gods to bring the flood. In verses 6 to eight, we see a very specific list of descendants. In chapter five, it's immediately followed by this short passage that explains why God sent a flood to punish the whole of humanity. But this passage concludes recognizing that in contrast to everyone else, Noah introduced in uh, Genesis 5:28 through32 finds favor in the eyes of God. With the words, man began to multiply in the first two verses of, this, of, of Genesis 6, it, we see the motif of multiplying. This is first introduced by God in Genesis 1.28, where it's presented in a very positive light and viewed as necessary to fulfill God's plan for the earth. The, the present passage, however, reveals that this God-mandated task, it leads to an increasing wickedness on the earth, as a population expands. Now, the problem is exasperated by the coming together of the sons of God and the daughters of man in verse 2. And the identity of both groups is uncertain, and the various solutions uh, have been advocated, though none has gained universal support. Various scholars have proposed that the sons of God are fallen angels. Some, however, suggest that this contradicts Mark 12:25. although the reference in Mark is to angels in heaven, which we can see in 2 Peter 2, 4-5 and Jude 5-6. And second, it could be a reference to the tyrannical human judges or kings in the godly line of Lamech, possibly demons-possessed. Or third, followers of God and the male descendants of Seth, the godly line of Seth, but who marry the ungodly daughters of Cain. Though it would be difficult to determine which of these three views may be correct, it's clear the kind of relationship described here involves some form of grievous sexual perversion wherein the sons of God saw, and with impunity, took any uh, women daughters of man that they wanted. And the sequence here in Genesis 6-2, saw attractive, good, uh, took, parallels the sequence of the fall in Genesis 3-6. Saw, got, good, and took. Now, on both cases, something good in God's creation is used in disobedience and even sinful rebellion against God with tragic consequences. Only Noah stands apart from this sin. In verse 3, God announces that because of the immoral nature of of people, their days shall be 120 years. Now, there's two possible ways to interpret this number of years. Either the lives of human beings will no longer exceed 120 years, or the coming flood is anticipated in 120 years. While the latter interpretation is simpler, the former interpretation is appealing It would be true as a generalization, even though some of the, those who live after the flood, such as Abraham, live in excess of 120 years. Verse 4, Nephilim. The meaning of this term, to be clear, is uncertain. It occurs in the Old Testament only in Numbers 13.33, where it refers to a group of people living in Canaan. If both passages refer to the same people, then the Israelites' spies in Numbers 13.33 are expressing their fears of the Canaanites by liking them to the ancient men of renown. Although in Hebrew, Nephilim means fallen ones. The earliest Greek translators rendered it gigantic giants. This idea may have been mistakenly deduced from Numbers 13.33, but the point is one must be cautious about reading it back into the present passage. The Nephilim were mighty men or warriors, and as such may well have contributed to the violence that filled the earth. Verse 5. This verse decries the universal intensity and the pervasity of human wickedness. Verses 6-7, the Lord was sorry and it grieved him in his heart, our text says there. The Hebrew v- verb rendered was sorry is sometimes translated repent and sometimes as feel sorrow to be grieved. And God is grieved over his creation which at first he saw was very good in Genesis one but which is now filled with sin the destruction of man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, it suggests that this will be a reversal of God's creative work. The result of, of the resulting flood reflects this for the dry land is submerged underwater subsequently to reappear as in Genesis 1-9. And from the face of the land, we, we will get this in verse 7 of this chapter. Now, Noah here is distinguished from all humanity. Apart from Noah, the only other person in the Old Testament who is described as finding favor in the eyes of the Lord is Moses in Exodus thirty-three seventeen, and possibly Abraham in Genesis eighteen three. Placed on par with Moses, Noah is rescued from the looming annihilation. In Genesis six nine, going until Genesis nine twenty nine, we're going to see Noah's descendants, and here the story is centered on Noah and his descendants. And this section, to be clear, is dominated by the account of the flood that brings about the renewal of the earth, which has similarities to Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3. And while the land is cleansed of the defilement caused by human wrongdoing, and its new start is made possible by God, the people's nature has not been transformed as the final short episode of Genesis nine twenty through 28 reveals. The inclination of the human heart is still bent towards evil. Now, in Genesis six nine through nine nine nineteen, we see Noah and the flood. This is a long section that recounts how Noah and his immediate family are rescued from the flood. By echoing Genesis one, the whole process is presented as the undoing of creation, and then the recreation of the earth emerges from the flood. But after the flood, not everything returns to pristine condition. Human nature is not renewed. Verse nine: These are the generations of Noah. So, there's a new heading here. It introduces this section of Genesis. Noah's personal righteousness explains why he is warned about the forthcoming deluge. The Hebrew word blameless, it conveys the sense of being perfect without evident flaw, although not necessarily sinless. Walk with God. Like Noah, Abraham is later required by God to walk before him and to be blameless, as we see in Genesis 17.1. The positive attributes listed here are rarely ascribed to human beings in the Old Testament verses 11 through 12. Now, in contrast to Noah, the earth was corrupt in the sight of God. That's because these verses confirm what has already been indicated in verses 1 through 7 of this chapter. Here, emphasis is given to the violence that fills the earth. And the mention of corruption here may lie behind Paul's bondage of corruption we see in Romans 8.21. The creation suffers as mankind uh, is corrupt its way and as God punishes that corruption. Originally delegated to govern the earth on God's behalf, humans have aggressively and viciously asserted their rule over others, including both people and other living creatures. The ancient Near Eastern epics of Gilgamesh and Atrasis also tell of a flood sent to punish human beings. And in those stories, it is merely the disruptive uh, part of humanity that leads to their destruction. But Genesis emphasized that God destroys the people he has created because of their immoral behavior. Now, in verses 13 through 17, in a long speech, God gives Noah directions for the construction of an ark. In verse 14, that, that will be sufficiently large enough to house his family and a wide variety of other creatures. Verse 15, in modern measurements, the ark would have been around 450 feet, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high, yielding a displacement of about uh, 43 tons. The inside capacity would have been about 1.4 million cubic feet with an approximate total deck of 95,700 square feet. Verse 17, simply put, if if that flood was a global year-long catastrophic event about 4,400 4,500 years ago, as Genesis appears to teach, then it's very reasonable to conclude that it would have produced an incredible amount of erosion and sedimentation and would have buried many plants and animals in those sediments, which would later become fossils as the sediments hardened in the rock. Creation geologists believe that the flood would have produced exactly the kind of geological features that we see all over the earth, as, for example, are beautifully displayed in the walls of the Grand Canyon, Arizona, in the United States of America." These Bible-believing geologists think that most, not all, of the fossil-bearing sedimentary rock layers are the result of the flood, but secular geologists who reject God's eyewitness testimony in Genesis 6 or 9 say that those rock layers were formed over hundreds of millions of years. And so if the flood produced most of the fossil-rich sedimentary layers around the world, then these layers cannot be the result of hundreds of millions of years of erosion and sedimentation as the secularists claim. For the first 1,800 years, the virtually universal belief in the church was that Noah's flood was a historical year-long global catastrophe, but in the early 19th century, the idea of millions of years became entrenched in the infant science of geology. Most of the church quickly accepted that idea, so about 1850, most Christians abandoned that belief in the flood. Today, most Christians, including most professing Christian geologists, believe that Noah's flood was either a myth, meaning it never happened, or a large but localized flood in Mesopotamian Valley, or the Tigris and the Euphrates, modern-day Iraq, described in exaggerated language. And yet... There are many biblical and extra biblical lines of evidence that Noah's flood was a historical event that really happened. Jesus believed it in Matthew twenty four thirty seven through thirty nine. Peter taught it in first Peter three twenty and second Peter two five and second Peter three three through seven. Isaiah believed it in Isaiah fifty four nine, and Ezekiel in Ezekiel fourteen fourteen believed that the flood was a real historical event. Now Eleven times in Genesis, the word death appears and is variously translated. This is the account or these are the generations of. The use of the word ties the whole book together as a historical document, conveying the key events and history from creation to the time of Moses. The flood reads like a diary describing things that happened on specific days in the 600 and the 601st year of Noah's life. Uh, The genealogy of Jesus demands that the flood really happened since all of his ancestors, including Noah, have been real historical people as we see in Luke 23 through 38, or else Jesus was descended from a myth. Lastly, hundreds of flood stories from people groups around the world, many of which have details matching those in Genesis 6 through 9, point to a real historical event in the memory of humanity. So the flood was not localized in the Mesopotamian Valley, as many Christians believe, but was global in its extent. When the waters reached the highest, there was no land above sea level anywhere on the planet. Only a global flood would cover all the high mountains under the heavens by at least 15 cubits, about 25 uh, feet or 7 meters, according to Genesis 7.19. So the purpose was the flood. It was uh, it was sent to destroy not only sinful man but also all the land animals and the birds not in the ark and the surface of the earth as we see in Genesis six seven and six thirteen. Birds are mentioned some nineteen times in Genesis six through nine, and the repetition is undoubtedly uh, meant to emphasize this point. And it points strongly to the global nature of the flood, since birds could easily fly out of the flood zone. The height of the flood, only a global flood would cover all the high mountains under the heavens by at least 15 cubits, about 25 feet or 7 meters, according to Genesis 7.19. And since water always seeks the lowest level to cover just the mountains in the Middle East would result in a global flood. Duration of the flood. From the beginning of the flood until the people and animals disembarked on ground was 371 days, Genesis 7.11 and Genesis 8.14 tell us. And the reference to 40 days in Genesis seven twelve through 18, as we'll see tomorrow, it refers to the continuous torrential rains, but the fountains of the deep did not close and the rains did not stop until the 150th day, as we'll see uh, in a couple days in Genesis 8 two. And, and then it took another 221 days for the waters to retreat and the land to sufficiently dry out. No local flood could last that long. The purpose of the flood, God told Noah to take onto the ark the birds and the land animals, and God brought to Noah so to repopulate the earth as a flood, as we'll see in the first three verses of Genesis 3 tomorrow. If the flood would have been localized in the Middle East, the ark would have been totally unnecessary. And even if all the creatures in the local flood had died, the area then would have been repopulated by creatures from outside the zone. And as for Noah and his family, they could have gone on a vacation to Egypt or Europe. The ark was only an absolutely essential if the flood was global. The volume of the ark. It was unnecessarily large, Genesis 6.15 says, to save only a few animals, birds, and people from a local flood. But the size described was necessary and adequate to save the number of the kinds of creatures taken on board. The Landing of the Ark it landed on a mountain, plural in Hebrew, of Ararat, likely modern-day eastern Turkey, near the top of the highest mountain somewhere in that region at that time. It was 74 days before any nearby mountains could be seen, as we'll see in Genesis 8, 4-5. through 5. No local flood could raise the ark to this altitude, and only a global flood would require this much time to recede, as the earth movement uplifted other mountains and the waters retreated into the new ocean basins so that other nearby mountains became... Came visible, rainbow promise god promised uh, to noah and his family to the animals and to the birds of the ark to all their offspring and to all the earth itself that he would never again send another flood to destroy them as we'll see in genesis 9 and if the flood had been local then god lied because uh since then there have been many local floods that have killed some animals and people and destroyed large areas of land but noah's flood was global and god has kept and will keep that promise Post-flood command: God directs the animals and Noah's family to repopulate the earth in Genesis eight fifteen through seventeen and nine one. The commands were only necessary if it were a global flood, since the animals and the birds outside the flood zone could naturally populate the other the area otherwise. Repetition of the universal terms: the Bible uses words such as and phrases such as all, every, under heaven, and in whose nostril was the breath of life in the flood account. Now, the Hebrew word kol, all or every, does not always literally mean all, but it often does. And when it does not, the context makes it perfectly clear. In Genesis 6-9, the 60-fold use of these words is empirically literal. Now, the use of the Hebrew word... Eretz and Adamai. Now, the word Eretz is used over 2,500 times in the Old Testament. It has both multiple meanings. Earth, meaning the planet, the ground, the land, the soil, or the country. It also refers to the people of the earth, as in Genesis 11.1. 1. But as with most other words in the Hebrew-English dictionary and in probably every other language, it is vitally important to remember that context must always determine the specific meaning in a particular sentence. The word abendime occurs 225 times in the Old Testament. It's translated ground or land, either a territory or all the land above the sea level. In this section of Genesis that we're talking about, in Genesis 6, 1 through 9:17, the flood account, Eris, is used 48 times. And in no case does the context indicate a geographically limited area. In these chapters, Adonai is used nine times. In fact, in the face of the ground in those chapters is a translation of the face of Adonai. Now, the face of Eretz is translated as the face of the earth in most English translations, because the context indicates that Eretz is referring to the land on the planet. Now, the word for flood in Genesis 6 uh, through 11 uh, Mabul. in these chapters 12 times God uses the Hebrew word Mabul. it appears only one other time in the Old Testament in Psalm 29 10 where it refers to Noah's flood since Mabul is preceded in that verse by the definite article the flood it is not referring to any flood but to the flood where God truly showed himself to be the absolute king. All other floods, literal or metaphorical in the Old Testament, are described with the noun shepet or the verb Zaran. Now in the New Testament, the Greek word cataclysmos, from which we get the word cataclysm, is used only in reference to Noah's flood. The same is true for the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The Septuagint cataclysmus is only used in Genesis six through eleven in Psalm twenty nine, ten, and Psalm twenty eight ten. Now, Jesus and Peter, both Jesus in Matthew twenty-four thirty-seven through 39, and Peter in 2 Peter 3, 3 through 7, they imply the flood was global since they linked the judgment of the flood to the future judgment as the second coming of Christ, which will have a global effect. Now, the purpose of the flood in terms of the flood being catastrophic, Expressing his holy wrath, God intended to destroy the surface of the earth, as we see in 2 Peter 3, 6, and blot out creatures, as we see in Genesis 6, 7 and Genesis 6:17. This is not a peaceful event that would leave no lasting evidence. The language implies a radical transformation of the face of the earth. The second result was the source of the waters, and this refers to... This was also catastrophic. The Hebrew word used in Genesis seven eleven are important. They're revealing. On the first day of the flood, all the fountains of the deep of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were open. The deep, tahum is used 36 times in the Old Testament. It refers to the oceans. Fountains means the subterranean waters uh, coming up into the earth's surface, broke open, as a translation of the, of the Hebrew rebakah, which is used in Numbers 16.31 when God destroyed rebellious Korah and his family and livestock with a small earthquake. In Judges 15.19, when God broke the rock to provide water for Samson. In Zechariah 14.4, where it refers to jesus splitting the mountains of olives east of jerusalem to form a huge valley at his second coming genesis 7:12. it shows that the windows of heaven is a metaphorical way to refer to rain but this was no spring rain to water the garden the nonstop global rain for 40 days was an expression of the wrath of God, and so the language implies earth movements on the deep ocean floor as it's broken up, earthquakes which would trigger volcanic eruptions and tsunamis, coupled with a torrential global rain, all of which would result in unimaginable destruction. The third result is the rising of the waters. The waters did not reach their peak on the first day; that likely didn't occur until the 40th day. From the outset, when the fountains were broken up, the, the waters continually rose, prevailed on the land, as we'll see tomorrow in Genesis seven eighteen 18-20. The Psalmist hammered the land, eroding it, as the floodwaters surged higher and higher and retreated between surges. And so, the rising of the water in any given area, there would be times of violence and other brief times of relative calm. It would not have been equally catastrophic everywhere at the same time. The fourth result was a movement of the waters. Both in the inundation stage and the recessional stage, water would be moving. And moving water erodes sediments and deposits them elsewhere. The Hebrew verbs, as we'll see in Genesis 8-5, they indicate a back-and-forth motion just as the raven flew to and fro in Genesis 8-7. And so there would have been additional erosion and sedimentation in the recessional stage, reworking material previously deposited during an inundation stage. This was a complex event that would have produced complex geological evidence, just like the evidence we observe in rocks today. The fifth, the dimensions of the ark, which we see in Genesis 6.15. Scientific research has shown that the ark's dimensions, particularly its length-wide height ratio, would have provided maximum stability, strength, and comfort to survive the worst sea conditions. The last point here in this section is the location of the Garden of Eden. The description in Genesis two ten through 14 cannot be harmonized with the geography of the post-flood Mesopotamian Valley or anywhere else on the earth. Genesis says that one river flowed out of Eden and divided into four rivers. In Mesopotamia, the Tigris and the Euphrates start in two different places in the mountains of Turkey and then join each other just before the flowing into the Persian Gulf. The fact that two of the rivers in Genesis 2 have the same names as rivers today, it's no surprise. As people have migrated on the earth, they have used the same name in the new land that they had in the old country. So we have Birmingham, England, and Birmingham, Alabama, USA. Now, in the New Testament times, Antioch in Syria was not the same city as Antioch and Poseidon. Use of the same name does not necessarily mean we are referring to the same location. Now, the Garden of Eden cannot be found because the pre-flood world was totally destroyed. Let's uh, wrap up our time uh, talking about what we can learn from all of this. The Bible could not be clear that the flood was a global catastrophe. Conversely, if the flood were just a big flood in the Middle East, the description in Genesis and the other relevant verses could not be more misleading. And now, what would we expect to find today if this global year-long catastrophic flood had occurred? We would expect to find billions of dead plants and animals, both land and sea creatures, buried under various kinds of sediment layers that have hardened into rock that show evidence of having been deposited in the water, not in a desert environment. We would expect to find evidence of massive erosion and sedimentation on a scale unlike anything we observe occurring today. And we would expect to find that same evidence all over the Earth. That is exactly what we find. Billions of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the Earth. The question of human fossils is complex. And we will talk about it perhaps later. But what we see in terms of billions of plants and, and animal fossils fossils is geographically extensive. Water depository sedimentary layers is exactly what we would expect from Noah's flood. Now, the flood is critical to the question of the age of the earth. The thousands of, of feet of sedimentary rock layers contained... Billions of layers of dead creatures that was formed either before Adam or after Adam. And if the geological evidence was formed over millions of years before man appeared on the earth, as evolutionists claim, then God looked to all that death, disease, and extinction and called it very good. And God's curse when Adam fell into sin had no impact on non uh, the non human creation, contrary to genesis three fourteen through twenty one and genesis five twenty nine and romans eight nineteen through twenty three and if that fossil record was formed after adam 's sin, then the most logical cause of most of it was noah 's flood. And so, if we accept millions of years, then we must reject the global flood as a global catastrophe, which is what most old earth Christians have done. If we believe God's word about the flood, then this is a very important reason for rejecting millions of years. It is neither logical nor biblical to believe in both Noah's flood and millions of years of earth's history. All the arguments for treating Noah's flood as a localized event in the Middle East ignore most of the biblical evidence that I've talked about here today. They give very shallow arguments that do not stand up to scrutiny. The real reason people believe that Noah's flood was only in the Middle East is that they have uncritically accepted what the majority of geologists say, especially regarding radiometric dating. But I encourage you today to believe God's clear and without error and without the possibility of error word rather than the fallible words of sinful people, most of whom are trying to explain the words without the world without God. So they do not have to feel corporally or morally accountable to him and to look at the geological evidence presented uh, here today that we've talked about. Let God's word be found true and all people who disagree with him be found liars. Genesis six eighteen through 22, God indicated that he will establish a covenant with Noah by taking into the ark two of every living thing, including birds, animals, and creeping things. God displayed the caring oversight that people were expected to have for other creatures. Well, I want to thank you for listening or watching this episode of the Reading the Bible Daily with Dave podcast. Today is January 6th, and we have looked at uh, Genesis 6. Until tomorrow, may the Lord richly bless you and keep you.
0: Thank you for listening to today's episode of Reading the Bible Daily with Dave podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to also like, subscribe, or follow Servants of Grace on Facebook,
1: Instagram, X, or YouTube. We appreciate your support.
0: Thank you for listening to today's episode of Reading the Bible Daily with Dave podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to also like, subscribe, or follow Servants of Grace on Facebook, Instagram,
1: X, or YouTube. We appreciate your support.